WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina. This is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. There's a new energy around town. It's a fire that the port city hasn't really seen in almost 125 years. Documentary filmmaker Christopher Everett argues the black entrepreneurial and professional class is coming back after being gutted in November 1898. The 2015 film Wilmington on Fire tells the story of what we're still calling the only successful coup d'etat on American soil, although there are other similar massacres perpetrated by white supremacists. Those attacks ushered in the Jim Crow era, effectively ending Reconstruction after the Civil War. Making Wilmington on Fire changed Christopher Everett's life in some fundamental ways. He met his wife during the making of that film. He established himself as a documentarian to be reckoned with, accepted a post at the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University, and later joined the Southern Documentary Fund as program manager, where he is today. Wilmington on Fire Part Two is now in the works, and it turns the title on its head. It tells the story of new black power, prosperity, and self-reliance, fueling a resurgence of a thriving African-American population in the port city. Christopher Everett, welcome to Coastline. Hey, how's it going? Thank you for having me on. It's great to have you with us. When do you first remember hearing about the 1898 massacre? How old would you have been? I would say first time I heard about it was I was a small kid. I would say about 10, 11 years old. We had these, um, you know, my family was really into black history and teaching it and educating us about our history and culture. And so they had a series of books in their house. And Ebony would come out with these books years ago. This is even before I was born. And so my grandparents and them just kept these old Ebony books. And they actually had a page um, about what happened in 1898 in there. And they also had stuff about um, Black Wall Street. Um, in Durham, North Carolina as well. And so that was kind of like my first, um, you know, thing about learning about the 1898 massacre. And then it wasn't until I became an adult and actually did um, a small project that I never got to finish about um, the Laurenburg Institute, a uh, historic black boarding and day school in my hometown of North Carolina, where it kind of opened my eyes a little bit more about it because the guy who actually, the, the two people who opened up the Laurenburg Institute, they actually were the only people that wanted to come to North Carolina in 1904 at the time. And I was like, okay, what was going on in in North Carolina back then? And so I started doing research. I said, okay, this is what I saw in that Ebony book when I was a kid, all this stuff that was happening um, in the state of North Carolina because of the 1898 massacre. And so that just opened my curiosity a little bit more. And I said, you know what, the next project I want to do is going to be about what happened in Wilmington. And so, and we are going to talk about your project working on on the Lorenberg Institute mm-hmm. piece, just because I think it's a it's a great part of a filmmaker's trajectory, right. like having pieces where you kind of go, right. wah, wah. but it led to something <laughs> right. really important. Right. But what was the connection between Lorenberg and Wilmington? Lorenberg right. is about 110 miles north, yeah, about an hour and a half. Yeah. 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 So. Why is there a connection there? Well, the connection that I saw was, um, so like if you, if anyone has seen Wilmington on Fire or have looked up anything about the Red Shirts who actually participated in the destruction and killing of African Americans during the 1898 massacre, any picture that you see of Red Shirts, 
those pictures aren't red shirts of, in Wilmington. Those pictures are red shirts in Laurenburg, North Carolina. Laurenburg had a, a very high concentration of red shirt activity during the time. And when you do research and look up old newspaper articles, they had a lot of white supremacy rallies in Laurenburg. So you had people from Wilmington that would come to Laurenburg and come all over the state to hold these big white supremacy rallies in the year of 1898. Um, so Laurenburg played a major part um, in this movement that really led into the 1898 massacre. And you also had red shirts that came from Laurenburg that came to Wilmington to actually participate in the killing and destruction of the black community here. Um, so Laurenburg had a strong connection to this story. And I guess when you look at it, it's crazy that an African-American <laughs> kid from Laurenburg ended up making a, a documentary about the 1898 massacre. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. So you open your first film, Wilmington on Fire, right. with Faye Chaplin. Mm -hmm. She is the great-granddaughter of Thomas Miller. Right. He right. was a victim in, in the 1898 coup? Yeah, he was... Uh, he was um, African-American man here um, in Wilmington during the time, one of the wealthiest um, black men in Wilmington. Um, he had one of the only pawn shops in the city. Um, he was heavy into real estate as well. And also he loaned money to white and black folks as well during the time. Um, but he was a part of that banishment campaign that happened. You know, you had a lot of black folks that were killed, but you all also had a lot of African-Americans and also white allies that were exiled and banished. And so he was one of those people that was exiled and banished for the city. And um, even if you watch the film, you see Faye reading a, a letter um, from him, writing to the people in Wilmington saying, hey, can I come back to go to my mom's funeral? And so he wasn't really allowed to come back to the city like many others weren't. Um, so, yeah, so he was a part of that whole banishment campaign of African-Americans that they exiled from the city. So let's listen to what she has to say about it in the 21st century. Right. Yes, I'm for compensation for the victims, ancestors of this ride, um, mainly because I think our ancestors fought long and hard for what they had um, to be taken away from them because of color. Um, I, I, I just feel like in some form of fashion, they should compensate. You go to Wilmington, all the areas, downtown Wilmington, uh, near the battleship, all of those streets around that property, that is land that at some point in time, Thomas Miller had a portion of that land. He owned quite a bit of that land around there. And for me to be a decedent of him, I look at it, you know, I go there, I see all the condos being built, I see all of the development in the area, and just think, Part of that should be ours. You know, if we were like stripped of our rights to a lot of his things because of color. Faye Chaplin, great granddaughter of Thomas Miller, who was exiled from Wilmington, North Carolina on November 10th, 1898, as part of a white supremacist massacre. And this was part of Christopher Everett's film, 2015 film, Wilmington on Fire. Why did you choose to open with a, a descendant 
of a victim who's saying, yes, I think reparations of some form are in order. Right. Well, you know, putting this project together, you know, I really wanted to send that message of why reparations is needed, Um, not only for the descendants of the victims of the 1898 massacre, but to African-Americans across the country. Um, I know the first person who I reached out to when I put together Wilmington on Fire was Larry Rennie Thomas, who's also featured in the film. And he said, Chris, a lot of people have, you know, approached me over the years of doing a documentary, but I want this to be from the black perspective. And I also want this to really focus and also make the case for reparations. I say, hey, that's what I'm trying to do. And so he was down with it. And that's the message I wanted to really send um, across the board. I wanted to start it off with that, paint the picture of what happened, and then also close it with that as well, of why we need reparations, what are the different options as well, um, good or bad. You know, some people say, hey, we need checks. Some people say, no, we don't need that. We need free education. You know, I'm open to expressing all of the options. And that's what we wanted to show. We wanted to show the options as well. Was there anything during the making of this film that you kind of discovered about the whole thing that you didn't right. know before? I would say just the the levels of this whole white supremacy campaign. You know, a lot of times when you're reading about racial massacres and things like that, they always focus on the people that they're doing the destruction, you know, but they don't understand or sometimes they don't talk about the, the people behind the scenes, you know, the lawyers, um, the legal stuff that was put in place. Um, the business um, class that really um, funded this movement as well, um, and also the media, um, the newspapers at the time that fueled the propaganda um, to lead up to something like this to happen. I think that's what really opened my eyes is to the different levels and layers um, to the 1898 massacre. And it's interesting because the deeper you go into, I guess, the wrongs perpetrated by you know, I I say white supremacist because that what was that's what right. was driving it, but it was <laughs> it was the white population here. Right. I mean, it was white people, the white community. <laughs> right. As deep as you go into that, you you still wind up coming out the other side right. saying, We have to call it out, but that's not the whole solution. Right. Can you talk about how you're thinking about it now? Well, you know, I'm always down for calling out white supremacy all day. You know, I made Wilmington on fire, probably the biggest call out of, of all time of white supremacy and what happened here in Wilmington. But at the end of the day, um, us as African-Americans, we still do. We still need to do what we need to do. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to make some type of follow up um, to this project to show like, hey, even though this happened we know what happened. We know the history. Now we have to do what we need to do as a community. We need to build back up our businesses, um, build up our institutions, and, and grow our community. Um, and so that's the message that I'm trying to see now. You know, years ago, 10 years ago, I might have been talking a little different. I think I was. But as you get older, you grow and you see that, hey, we do need to push for what we're doing, but we also need to do what we need to do as well as a community. You're listening to Coastline. Documentary filmmaker Christopher Everett is my guest today. We'll be right back after this short break. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.
You're listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Christopher Everett released the documentary Wilmington on Fire in November of 2015. It's the story of white supremacist fear and anger and ultimately organization leading to a violent massacre that killed an unknown number of African-American citizens in Wilmington, forced elected officials out of office at gunpoint, and gutted the black professional class in the port city. One of the people who appears in this documentary was independent researcher Kent Chatfield. And John Staten of the Star News wrote a little profile of him. He's been a longtime challenger of government authority, a skeptic. He's had some run-ins with the law himself. You rely a lot on his research for evidence of white supremacist organization, lost property. In this clip that we're going to hear... He talks about the white government union. So I want to get your take on the other side of this. When the North Carolina Democratic Party's executive committee created the white government union in 1897, they did so by a vote. Well, we know that it was created. We have their constitution and bylaws. It even says within the constitution and bylaws, it was created by the Democratic Party to do this. What I'd like to know is, when was the vote taken to abolish their secret political society? I'd like the North Carolina Democratic Party Executive Committee to answer that question, because I've never heard that it was ever abolished. So what you're saying is, it's probably still going on? I think it's alive well in North Carolina. Kent Chatfield from Christopher Everett's documentary Wilmington on Fire about the 1898 coup d'etat in Wilmington. So he's he's talking about the white government union mm-hmm. created by the Democratic Party mm-hmm. in 1897. And uh, for those who know political history, we know that many of the uh, policy positions and leanings have shifted from Uh, the Democratic Party to Republican Party. Some would argue that the Democratic Party today, which arguably hasn't done much for its citizens of color, is still the better ally when it comes to certain policy positions like, say, reparations. So what does that mean to you Mm. when he's talking about the white government union still being alive and well? I think, you know, and it's my opinion, um, you know, I really think that, you know, what he's talking about is just... And a lot of people don't realize this is that, you know, when this massacre happened and the people behind the massacre, a lot of them were lawyers. You know, a lot of them were heavy into the law and also they were able to get into politics and and cement a lot of the laws um, after the 1898 massacre. Um, When you look at the creation of the North Carolina Bar Association in 1899, um, several members behind the 1898 massacre was some of those founders of the North Carolina Bar Association in 1899. And so that's what he's really kind of talking about is how they were able to cement a lot of these laws of white supremacy. um, Then is a lot of this stuff still hasn't changed. Um, You know, there's a lot of work that people out there that are trying to change some of these laws and stuff like that, but we still have a long way to go. And I think that's what, you know, that clip is really talking about um, is just how these laws were just cemented in our, um, you know, in our laws and systems here in North Carolina that still really that we deal with today. So he's coming out. This is why John Staten, I guess, wrote the piece. He's coming out with a film about 
higher levels of government involved right, right. Okay. in the 1898 coup. Yeah, yeah. You include some of that mm-hmm. in Wilmington on Fire, mm-hmm. but um, don't go very deep. And maybe yeah, 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 yeah. it's because maybe some of that evidence had been, hadn't become available to you yet. Yeah, and, we filmed this film yeah, a while ago. <laughs> so, yeah. Right. So when you think about that now, mm-hmm. higher levels of government involvement in the coup, right, right. are we talking about... Uh, active involvement and organization, or are we talking about just negligence, just letting the South? Yeah, I would say I would say both, um, because you know, folks wrote President McKinley, um, who was the president at the time. You know, those letters are documented. Um, it's in the McKinley Papers that's available at Library of Congress, and he had several, like thousands of people, writing to him, like, "Hey, something is about to happen in Wilmington. Something is happening in Wilmington." Um, George Henry White who was a congressman during the time, he actually met with and talked with McKinley several times about, hey, you need to send some help here um, to protect the citizens of Wilmington. And, you know, just talking with other historians, um, they have studied what happened, like Lorraine Unfleet, who actually wrote the official state report. She even mentions that, you know, McKinley's hands were tied in, you know, and also he didn't really want to have what recently happened 30 years prior, which we had a civil war. Um, so black people really had to be, I guess, the sacrificial lamb to keep this thing going, you know, because the Civil War pretty much bankrupted, you know, this country. And he didn't really want that type of thing to happen again. But what it did do is put out the signal throughout the South that you can do whatever you wanted to to African-Americans and you can get away with it. When you look at 1906 in Atlanta, the Atlanta massacre, the people behind that, and you can look it up. They quoted, they quoted, hey, we're going to do what, what they did in Wilmington. And so the Wilmington massacre really set that precedent because on the federal level, there was negligence and also the state as well, that you can do what you want to do to African-Americans and get away with it. You had, uh, I think he was a clinical psychologist, Dr. Umar Johnson, talking about how some of this came from the fact that black soldiers helped the Union Army win the war and were in many ways responsible. I mean, we know Mm -hmm. even with the latest installation Mm -hmm. at the Cameron Art Museum Mm -hmm. that... uh, Black soldiers were key right. in the Union Army winning yeah. that war. Yeah. Is that is that enough for you? I mean, that's that's some psychological trauma, isn't it? To <laughs> to think about your own country right. caring so little about a portion of its own citizens. I mean, mm-hmm. how do you process that as a human? It's it's crazy, but the thing is. If people don't realize African-Americans have fought in every major war in this country. You know, we've always done that, whether it's the American Revolution, um, the Civil War, World War II. You know, we're finally starting to hear about the 761st Tank Battalion, the Tuskegee Airmen, a whole bunch of people who even fought. You know, in every war, we've always um, done that for this country, even though this country never really loved us back, you know, especially during those times. Um, so, yeah, it's 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 fascinating, um, you know, how African-Americans did that and continue to, uh, you know, fight for the country, even though the country didn't fight for them. Yeah. Before we get to Wilmington on Fire Part Two, uh, which is very exciting, <laughs> I want to highlight 
what Duke University professor William Darity, who has appeared on Coastline to talk right, about right. the book he co-authored with his wife, Kirsten Mullen, who is also a writer and scholar. Mm-hmm. They wrote together uh, From Here to Equality, which is right. making the case for reparations. Right. Uh, in this clip, he talks about the evidence, basically, that shows the decimation of black businesses in Wilmington after the coup. We can compare the city directories for 1897 and 1900, and they list all the uh, business enterprises in the city. They also indicate who the owners were of the enterprises, and they indicate the race of the owners. And so in 1897, we, we know that there were approximately 216 black entrepreneurs in Wilmington while there were 789 whites. The riot takes place towards the end of 1898. And if we go through the 1900 city directory, we find that there are only 162 black entrepreneurs. So that's a decline of 25%, in contrast with a slight decline among whites of about 2%. And uh, the preferred sites for business locations in the city apparently are in the Front Street and Market Street areas. And the numbers of black businesses on the Front Street and Market Street areas decline dramatically. I think it goes something like from from 18 black businesses down to three or four. Professor William Darity of Duke University in Christopher Everett's Wilmington on Fire 2015 documentary. When you hear that, mm. how how do you how do you think about that? Like finding this kind of evidence? Oh man, it's crazy. Um, for one. But I think the biggest thing is that we had more black businesses, you know, back then in Wilmington than we do today. I think that's the most shocking part. You know, I understand, you know, white supremacy and and what happened with the massacre. But I'm looking like, you know, what are we doing today? Because I know it was an interview that I wish I could have included because we interviewed several people in the first Wilmington on Fire and one interview I didn't get to include in there was by uh, Dr. Claude Anderson out of Washington, D.C., author of Powernomics, Black Labor, White, White Wealth as well. And I remember he interviewed with us, and he was like, you know, African-Americans back then had more sense than we do today, that even back then they knew that we needed to own and control, and we needed to build businesses and communities, and we're not doing that today. And I think that's what's really shocking to me, that when you look at the businesses that we had, even though, you know, we didn't have the majority of businesses in the city, you know, just 30 years after slavery, 30, 40 years after slavery, you know, just doing that alone was a major accomplishment. But I'm looking at us right now, all the freedoms and things like that. We're making way more money <laughs> than they did back then. And why can't we do that now? And I think that's the thing that's really shocking to me. What do you think the answer has been to that? I mean, it's changing. Right. Like, it's right. changing in a lot of ways, it not is. just in Wilmington. Yeah. But... But why do you think that that uh, that's just been part of the landscape or part of the dynamic for a while? I think it's a lot of factors. You know, I think, you know, white supremacy still plays a part of it. Um, But I think that, you know, integration, even though it was it led to a lot of good things, but it also hurt some things as well. You know, we lost our sense of community. Uh, we start supporting our businesses as well and institutions. And that's just not a Wilmington thing. That's just a United States thing in general. You know, you look at Durham's Black Wall Street. It's non-existent now. There aren't any black businesses there at all. I think it might be two or three, <laughs> you know, in that whole strip of the historic Paris Street um, area. 
Um, but prior to integration, that wasn't the case. That's why we called it Black Wall Street. Um, so it's several factors. Um, but, you know, we can't really gloom on the past, you know, all the time. And I think that's one thing I've been trying to preach about is that we know the history. We know what happened. Um, let's take that that energy of of what our people accomplished then and do it now. And I think that's what we have to do to really move forward. Yeah, we need to push for reparations and also other structural changes. But we need to do what we need to do as African-Americans to rebuild our communities, communities and our business class as well. So that's a perfect introduction to part of Wilmington on Fire, part two. Let's listen. You know, it's kind of letting the, the oppressor win if we leave Wilmington. That's why we have to actually fight to make Wilmington different, because if we don't, then, then we lose this, this jewel of a place. I want Wilmington to look like a place where, where black people can thrive and black people know that they can thrive. That's a population of African-Americans that's getting ready to emerge in the city that people are not aware of, but they're thinking different. We came together and we kept coming together and kept coming together. And people kept saying, you know, there was a leader. There, there are no leaders. It's, it's the lowercase leaders because we didn't want this leadership. We don't have titles. We are literally just community members who came together to fight and voice the community. I knew that. The ones that did stick around once the smoke was cleared was going to be a new set of leaders that, that the city was going to have to deal with. I mean, Wilmington is one of the fastest growing cities in the country now. This should be the mecca for uh, black and minority entrepreneurship, especially with everything that's happened in our past. And so that's part of what drives us. The pieces are already here. It's a matter of putting them all together. How do I problem solve? How do I address a conflict? How do I address someone trying to hurt me, right? How can I earn economics in my community without actually poisoning my community or taking from other people's resources in my community? This is what we want Sakota House to be. The beauty that's here, I think it's important for black people to come back and experience that again. And I know we can thrive because we did it before. We are the future. <laughs> Who were some of those voices that we heard? Oh, well, some of those voices, um, you know, um, Folks from Sakota House, which is a great grassroots organization here. Um, Abdullah, um, one of the uh, founders, co-founders of Sakota House. You heard his voice. You heard uh, Lily Nicole, um, a local community activist here um, as well. We also heard um, from Gerard Newkirk, who's co-founder of Genesis Block, which is a, uh, a minority-owned um, co-working space as well. And we also heard from Cedric Harrison, um, who co-own no not co-own <laughs> he owns and, and he also founded um wilmington in color which is a great um black history um tour bus and definitely everyone should check that out and and go ahead and sign up for that yeah so sakoto house on mm -hmm. dawson street mm -hmm. tell what is that this grassroots right. initiative and well, what what is it trying to do well sakoto house you know it's really a, a community center um, that's right in the heart of the community on Dawson Street. And it's just a way for, you know, for a place for people to, to come together, um, to talk, to share ideas, exchange resources, you know. So they have some great programs there. You know, they do like a lot of, you know, health and wellness stuff. You know, they have an actual farm. You know, not really a farm, but it's more of a, um, a small garden that they're trying to build up into something like that. Um, they do a lot of stuff. They um, have classes on the martial sciences, how the martial sciences can can heal and strengthen um, the community as well. They do a lot of 
of, of those type of things, you know, really health and, and mental health um, work as well. So it's a great um, resource um, for the community that everyone should definitely check out and support. Genesis Block, mm-hmm. you actually won a competition. Yeah. T- tell us a little <laughs> bit about that. Yeah, well, Genesis Block, like I said, you know, they're definitely featured in Wilmington on Fire 2. And, you know, for the past couple of years, we've been filming them doing these competitions and doing these um, business um, incubator things. And they said, man, you know, you're a business owner. You should actually participate in this. I say, yeah, you're right. Let me check it out. <laughs> and so I learned so much of of how to really um, grow my business, scale my business. And so it's like a, it was like a, I think it was like a six to nine week um, class. We will meet every Monday, you know, with a, uh, with a business coach and consultant um, to really learn how to scale and maximize our business. And so the last day was like a shark tank um, type of deal where it's me and like eight other businesses competing, you know, doing our three minute pitches. So you have like a, it's like a three to four minute time, time to pitch to go through your whole pitch, and then you have like four minutes from the judges, you know, asking questions and stuff like that. And so I was the last person to go out of everyone, and I was so nervous because I was practicing for weeks and weeks with my wife, and then I finally did it. And then at the end of the day, they called out, you know, the third-place person, second-place person, then the winner, and they called my name. (laughs) (laughs) So it was cool. It was a cool experience, you know, being on the opposite side of it because, like I said, I've I already filmed like several of these for the documentary. And so being on the opposite side of things, actually participating and winning. Then also I got like a cool um, consolation prize as well. Um, So I got like a, they call it the C-suite where you get like business coaching and stuff like that. So that's been pretty cool as well to continue um, to participate in that program. So a lot of this new energy is uh – people coming together mm-hmm. to bring up other people. Right. Like it's not just individual entrepreneurs exactly. trying to do their own thing. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what it's all about. You know, it's about community. Um, you know, that's what the whole creation of Small Business Saturday is about. You know, let's shop local. You know, let's spend money with each other. You know, if I have a store um, that that's selling products, let me get that product from the local um, person, you know, and sell it in here. And so that's what it's all about. And that's what they're trying to do. Um, that's what all of these folks are trying to do is really building back up the African-American community by working together. So much of the language that you use, the initiatives that you talk about, it's it's based in strength and yes. power. Yes. And there's not, uh, I mean, you say that you call out white supremacy when you see it. Yes. You, you make a case for reparations because there is a case to be made. Definitely. But you're not wallowing and you're not a victim. Right. And, and that's the thing. Um, you know, a lot of times when you say, well, I'm not a victim, people say, okay, well, you're selling out. No, not at all. You know, we do need to fight for reparations, but until then, we still need to build our infrastructure. So when the reparation, when the reparation does come, we're ready to roll. You're listening to Coastline. Christopher Everett, documentary filmmaker, is with us today exploring the resurgence of black power and prosperity in the city of Wilmington. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.
listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Wilmington on Fire Part 2 takes the horrific story of 1898, the massacre, the successful coup d'etat, and the expulsion of the black professional class, and turns it on its head. Christopher Everett's new film showcases the rising of the black entrepreneurial class in Wilmington. Once again, Christopher Everett, Let's talk about you as a filmmaker for a moment, because it's a journey. I mean, yeah. you're an artist. You're right. you're a documentarian, a journalist, and an artist. Right. And we're going to talk in a moment about some of your earlier work that right. maybe you're, it feels a little cringy to you. But <laughs> all great filmmakers right. pull the curtain back on their early work right, for, right. for a good reason. Right. But the sources in Wilmington on Fire Part 1, I mm-hmm. mentioned in an earlier segment mm-hmm. that Kent Chatfield is identified as an independent researcher. Mm-hmm. Um, John Staten in the Star News notes that he's had some run-ins with the law. Mm-hmm. He comes across as a as a really intelligent source with some pretty solid evidence mm-hmm. of his allegations. Mm-hmm. But how did you think about who you chose to be the right. voices in this film? Right. Well, um, I would say one of the, the biggest inspirations was from my actual, one of my associate producers, uh, Tariq Nasheed. Um, he is basically known for producing, to me, one of the most successful black history documentary series of all time, Hidden Colors. And how he put the first Hidden Colors together was amazing. He pretty much took like a lot of these these strong personalities these these bright minds and kind of put them all together in a cohesive you know flow you know with the documentary I said you know what this could work um, with my film because you know just me I love documentaries but a lot of them are boring <laughs> you know <laughs> they're hard to stay with and stuff like that so you know I wanted to have a lot of good information and factual information but I wanted to make sure we had personalities um, that were very diverse as well and so, like I said, Larry Thomas was one of the first people I reached out to. And Larry doesn't get his credit, but he was really one of the first people to even talk about 1898 on a reparation scale since like the 80s. You know, so he was like the first person that reached out to me. He's worked with people like Kent. He introduced me to him. He introduced me to Professor Darity. They've worked together for years. He introduced me to Larry Umfleet. Um, so Larry is a person that rarely gets his due. Um, I want to give him that due now uh, because he was very instrumental of, um, you know, doing this stuff. And he actually introduced me to a lot of direct descendants as well that he's been working with over the years. And so, you know, that's how I kind of put this thing together, you know, reaching out to people like LaRae and then also getting people to actually contribute to the report. So people like Kent, Larry, Professor Darity, they all kind of contributed something to the 1898 report. You know, LaRae compiled it all and put her, you know, her stuff to it as well. And then also I wanted to have some direct descendants. You know, I wanted to have the grandson of Alex Manley, uh, one of Thomas Miller's um, descendants as well. You know, and so and have someone like a Dr. Umar to come in as well to talk about, you know, the psychology aspect to it and stuff about propaganda and, and stuff like that. And then Professor Darity, you know, focuses on economics, just like his book really focuses on the case for reparations. And so it's just a combination that I wanted of different personalities, different perspectives. And so that's how I kind of came up with um, choosing um, these type of individuals for the film. Now, you made an earlier attempt at a documentary about the Lorenberg Institute. Mm-hmm. So remind us briefly what the Lorenberg Institute yeah. was. 
Yeah, the Longbrook Institute is a historical black boarding and day school for folks in Wilmington. You know, Williston is kind of like their pride and joy. So that was kind of like our Williston in Laurenburg. And the school's been around since 1904, same family for three generations. Uh, my grandparents went to school there, aunts, uncles. My godfather was the alumni president for years. Some of the notable, I guess, alumni, Dizzy Gillespie, um, Charlie Scott, you know, people that love UNC Tar Heel basketball, familiar with him. Um, just countless of individuals who've attended that school over the years. Um, so, yeah, so that's what it's all about. Um, you know, I grew up right around the corner from the school, very connected um, with the institution for years, and, you know, wanted to get my start in documentary work <laughs> by doing a, a project on them. You know, I didn't know what I was doing at the time, um, but that kind of didn't happen for me. Um, you know, I learned a lot by doing that film, and I always tell young filmmakers that, hey, you just have to do it, and you learn by doing. You know, that's stuff they can't teach in film school. Does you have to make films. Does it smart a little bit still? That Because when, when we first spoke, mm-hmm. you called it a bomb. Yeah, and I bomb. said, well, what, what do you mean by a bomb? And you, it sounded like you kind of think about it mm. as a failure. Yeah. But what's, what's the importance of failure for well, a filmmaker? The importance of failure is that, one, if I didn't fail it, I probably wouldn't have done Women's on Fire. You know, it led me to that. And then also I've become a better filmmaker now. And so that's, that's how you have to look at it. You, you're only going to learn by failing, you know. Um, because there's certain parts of Wilmington on fire. The first one that I can't even watch in front of people. A lot of people don't see it, but as a filmmaker, you see every mistake you've made. Even the legends like Spike and Spielberg, they all can't even watch some of their first earlier works because they know they were learning. But you get better. And if you see Wilmington on fire too, and you see footage from Grandmaster, you can see that we stepped our quality up a lot. I just became became a better filmmaker. That's what you do. You want to get better with every project, but you can only do that by doing it. Now, you are in a very, some could argue, competitive field yeah. as a documentary filmmaker. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, being an artist in yeah. any way, shape, or form can be really tough. Right. But uh, you, don't, you don't act like you're in competition with anybody. No. In fact, you're, you're reaching out and bringing people up behind you. Yeah. I, you know, I've, I've never looked at it as competition. I'm on the independent level. I'm not even in that Hollywood system, even though I get a lot of support and praise from certain Hollywood folks like Hillary Burton Morgan. I got to give her a shout out. You know, she's always supported anyone who knows her or familiar with uh, One Tree Hill. Uh, she's always been supportive. Uh, Peyton Reed, who directs the uh, Ant-Man movies for Marvel. He's always supported as well. Um, but I just love what I'm doing and telling the type of stories. And But I always try to help others as well because someone helped me. Like I told you earlier, Tariq Nasheed, he was one of the first people to, to give me some money to do the first Wilmington on Fire. Also, Pete Chapman, who's a Hollywood director, TV director right now, he came on board as my EP. He's I've learned a lot from him over the years. So someone helped me out. And so that's what I try to do. I always try to do what I can do within my capacity um, to help others who are really doing the work. Now, if you just come into me and say, hey, I want to make films, but you're not putting in the work to show me that you're doing, I can't do nothing for you. But if you're coming to me with a plan, you, you're shooting, you have footage, and you just need some guidance, I'm down to help you all day. You now are, I mean, you're an entrepreneur. You have your yes. own film production company. How do you think about work? As, as a business owner, how do yeah. you think about work up against rest 
and play yeah. and and activities that have nothing to do with production, right. life, family. Right. When you're trying to build something, mm-hmm. I think it's very hard for some people to say, I need to stop yeah. and I need to go and relax or I need right. to just lie down for 24 or 48 hours. Right. How do you give yourself permission to do that? Well, your body will, will just force you to do it. And that's what <laughs> happened to me a few years ago. Um, you know, I was doing that. I was working, you know, full-time job at Duke, you know, still pushing out Wilmington on Fire, trying to get part two going. I was starting to film the Grand Master Project as well. And I just wasn't taking care of myself. I wasn't taking care of myself. I wasn't eating right. I wasn't getting rest. And my body just broke down. And then come to find out, I was a type 2 diabetic. You know, I was in the hospital for like a week. It took like a week to get my blood sugar back to normal. Blood sugar was like over 800. And from then on out, I said, you know what? I need to take a pause Um, because if I happen to die, (laughs) you know, um, it's a lot of stuff I still haven't accomplished yet that I want to do. Let me take a pause. Let me make sure that I'm getting what I need for myself. And so since then, and the pandemic happened maybe a month after that as well. And so it really gave me a time to say, you know what, I need to refocus some things. And then that's when I got the concept to do Wilmington on Fire 2 the way that I did it. And I said, you know what, I want to do something different that's going around with part two as well. And so that changed my whole perspective going through that that, that small health scare of getting myself together and also creating some type of solutions uh, for our community as well moving forward in Wilmington. And so how how do you listen to your body. Yeah. I mean, can we get a little granular here? Like, how do, how do you measure that out? Do you, do you yeah. have a certain set work day that you right. say, I'm pulling the plug no matter what? Or yeah. do, do you just wait until you feel tired? How do, no. how do you say I need to rest or play? Well, pretty much, you know, if you're, you know, I work a nine to five still, you know, I have to do that because that pays the bills. And then running Speller Street, I do that kind of like in my off time, like today, for example, you know, I'm off from my regular nine to five, but I'm doing Speller Street work. And so I just, you know, I just do it like a nine to five, you know, nine to five, I'm working nine to five. And then I'll take a, a little break, do maybe an hour of Speller Street stuff. And then the rest of the night, I'm hanging out with my family, which is my wife. And on the weekends, I make sure we have our time to do things we need to do as well. Um, so it's just really just creating a balance for yourself. At one time, all I was just doing was work, work, work. Day job plus Speller Street. And it ended up catching up to me. But now, yeah, I do the work, but I just try to find time to do things that I enjoy. Taking walks, going to the gym, going to the movies with my wife, doing things with my wife, and also incorporating her in a lot of the stuff that I'm doing as well. That's stuff that I wasn't doing. And so it's been pretty it's been pretty fun and interesting having her involved in what we have going on now as well. And so that's how I kind of mix it up. And the two of you are on the verge of buying a house in Wilmington? Yeah, yeah. And we're working with, uh, you know, Brenda, who's one of the uh, featured um, business owners um, in Wilmington on Fire, um, too. Um, She has a great program called Get That Deed. And what she's been trying to do is to get more African-Americans into home ownership. And so, you know, we're working with her. And so it's been, like I said, it's been cool to be on the opposite end of things, of documenting her for two years, of working with folks, getting them into homes. Now it looks like she's going to be getting us into one as well. And talking about your next project, I mean, you've mentioned Grandmaster Vic Moore. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I 
I'm not going to take a crack at his title and his accomplishments because I don't know anything. (laughs) But before we listen to this clip, which is one of your projects in the works right now, tell us a little bit about who he is. Well, Grandmaster Vic Moore, he's a martial arts pioneer from the 1960s, was really one of the first um, professional karate champions in the United States when karate first became a professional sport. He's one of the first black grand national champions as well. You know, he has a, an accomplished career in the martial arts, been um, in the martial arts field for over 65 years. Um, he's fought people like Chuck Norris. He's done speed competitions against Bruce Lee. Um, he even trained a chimp how to do karate <laughs> as well back in the 80s. Um, and he's still around teaching to this day, 80 years old, still going strong of spreading Um, the love of karate. And um, so I've always been a huge fan of martial arts, martial arts movies. That's always been my first love. And to find out about someone like him and finding out that he lives in North Carolina, I said, I have to do this as my next project. So after I finished part one of Wilmington on Fire, I went right into um, putting this project together. And we have a clip of him selling photographs Mm -hmm. of himself at a convention, I think. All right, are you in karate? Yes, sir. Well, you want to get some of these souvenir pictures and stuff. Me fighting Bruce Lee, Chuck Norris, Joe Lewis, Mike Stone. I'm Vic Moore, four-time world karate champion, 10th degree black belt. Y'all don't want to go home without some of these historical pictures. I'm the only person in the world that beat Bruce Lee and Chuck Norris and Joe Lewis. So by having this picture, you have a picture of the first professional karate match. That's me and Joe Lewis. We're on the internet. Put your arm up on my shoulder and make people think you know me. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> put, your, put your hand on my shoulder. It makes people think you know me. So that's Grandmaster Vic Moore, professional, a karate champion. Yeah. Uh, part of your Christopher Everett's next project, yes. one of your next projects. Yeah. What did karate mean to you as a kid? Oh, it means it means so much. You know, I actually studied it for a small period of time, but like a lot of young people, you get out of it because the attractiveness of basketball and football. And but also, you know, growing up you didn't really have a lot of African Americans um spotlighted like that. And I think that's what really fascinated me with him and his story and also finding out about other black martial artists, men and women during this time who were amazing. And I'm like, man, why haven't we heard about them? You know, you don't see any books about them. You definitely don't see any documentaries. So again, like I was saying earlier, instead of complaining and whining about it, I'm going to go ahead and do something about it. And that's one of the reasons why I made Wilmington on Fire. And this is one of the reasons why I wanted to do Grandmaster the Vic Moore story as well. So we have just about a minute left. What is the big dream for you? What's that thing that you haven't quite touched yet? Several. I would say one is to actually do Speller Street films full time (laughs) where I don't have a a regular nine to five and trying to do this on the side and trying to build it up. I think really making Speller Street films a full time thing for me where I can focus and really develop, um, you know, these type of projects. And I know the next project that I'm also thinking about doing is something on Dizzy Gillespie. 
um, really focusing on his early years. And, you know, Dizzy Gillespie went to the DeLormberg Institute. I actually met him when I was a kid. And, yeah. You yeah. met him? Yeah, as a kid, as a kid. Because, like, my, my godfather, he was the alumni president um, for years. You know, he, he's, um, you know, he's dead now. But, you know, people like Dizzy and others would always want to do benefit concerts, fundraising events. So they always w- would have to go to my go- my godfather to help coordinate that type of stuff. And so, yeah, so I've always been fascinated with his story, him growing up in Chirral, attending Larnberg Institute, and then going to pursue his um, his musical career. And so that's probably going to be one of my next projects is to develop that and get that going. Because I have to do something for my town of Larnberg, and I think that's one that will really make the, make the town proud. And that's this edition of Coastline. Christopher Everett, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Fernell engineered this episode. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Continue the conversation with us on Facebook. You can find us at WHQR's Coastline hosted by or just send an email to coastline at whqr.org. You can find the episode along with additional resources at whqr.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.